What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. back with our guest who we are so excited to have on and have been trying to get on for so long, Alicia Menendez, who is a contributing editor at Bustle, a co-host of the very exciting new show. Brand new. Brand, brand new. new. Shiny and new. Amanpour and Co. It took the Charlie Rose spot on PBS, <clears throat> NBD. Um, it is the late their late night interview program now. Um, and she is also the co-creator and host of the Latina to Latina podcast. Welcome. Hey. Thank you so much for being here. Hi. We're so excited to have you. Oh my God. And you have so much happening right this very minute. And Um, you made me come to Middle Earth to record this. Exactly. <laughs> Alex's house. Yeah, yeah same. Yeah. So you have the television show, which mm-hmm. just started. Latina to Latina is coming back. Like, basically, the day this thing airs yes. will be new episodes. Um, so stop listening to this. Yeah. yeah Get over there. Get over the other thing. <laughs> um, and then meanwhile, you're writing. Um, what else is going on? Yeah. I, so I, my my book mm-hmm. is was due last week, and oh, my editor my has just been delightful about <laughs> allowing me to kick that can down the road. When's your book coming out? Our book is coming out in March. March. Yeah, March. That deep sigh. So you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. It's and a, what's the book about? It is about how workplace advice fails women, mm. and about how um, so about I'm how a, treat taught, tells them to act like men at work. Yeah. Yeah. And about how I think we've sort of have ignored this cultural reality that ambitious women such as ourselves weren't just raised to be ambitious. We were also raised to care about likability and how other mm. people perceive mm. us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just getting into a fight about this with Alex because mm-hmm. of Serena Williams. Yes. <laughs> right. And my husband was like, you need to put this book out immediately. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm desperate to read it. Well, well, good, because I'm desperate to write it. Um, <laughs> but but no, I mean, I just I care about both things. I have a lot of ambition and yeah. I also do care about how others perceive me. And I think I see a lot of Instagram things like do you like forget yeah. a, and I don't think it's that easy and I yeah. think when you tell women to just care less that just becomes another thing that women have, have to, to fix. do yeah I relate to that so deeply I'm so excited to hear you talk about this and to read the book it's something you and I I think have come up against and I'm looking at Erica yeah, and saying yeah. you and I and especially in our management coaching sessions and sometimes we do 
push back, I think, on the advice of our management coach, who rightly presses us to be really firm in certain situations. And I think one thing that I've learned is important is just to say, that's just not me. That's just not who I am. Yes. And that is one of the things that I have found, which is that even women who are nailing it, who are either a warm communal leader who've been coached to be a little bit more assertive, which Mm -hmm. is, I think, probably where most women fall, um, and or the women who are in the minority where they are more agentic and more assertive Mm -hmm. and have been coached to be a little bit softer. Even once you hit that mark, then what I hear from women is, I'm exhausted and Mm -hmm. I'm not doing this as myself. And if authenticity is critical to likability. Yeah, that's what I think. I think the authenticity factor is so important in leadership. And that's and that is why I think I've had to just at some point get comfortable with the fact that I really do care what people think. Yeah, and say it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that is the one of the first steps, which is to to say that out loud and to be okay with that because there is value in that. What you're saying is I want to be connected with other people. Mm -hmm. I want other people to see me as I am. And and I do think when we're in spaces, I mean, you two obviously love each other, Mm -hmm. but the fact that you love each other allows you to really thrive Mm -hmm. because it allows you to Well, we get to be super authentic. We get to be super vulnerable with each other. And like, you know, we we have shit going on all the time that we can pause and say, like, are you okay right now? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Can you like step out yeah. of this meeting? That's so unique, though. I mean, yes. I, and I think part Truly. of it is also like a lot of these books are written for women in corporate America where there's a lot of structure around yep. it. Mm-hmm. But it, more and more, there are women like me who are taking on a variety of freelance yep. jobs. Yep. There are women like you who are starting mm-hmm. their own ventures. And so the rules are much more unwritten, which is both scary, but also gives you an opportunity to write them your own way. Yeah. Right. And so I think the danger is taking the bad lessons from corporate America and not taking the opportunity. You can create your own culture. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. I also think the point you made about women being so exhausted by it is really important because it is work to do all of that, trying to be the one thing or the other. And if if you are, say, a man and you're not thinking about all of that, you have all of that mental energy to direct towards something potentially more valuable. Right. Yeah. It's also been illuminating for me as since since if you're listening, you can't see me mm-hmm. as a fair skinned Latina where mm-hmm. I have the benefit of shape shifting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in white spaces, I, c- I can essentially be a white person. Mm-hmm. And in Latino spaces, I can essentially be Latino. I don't experience my identity that way, yeah. but I understand that other people experience yeah. me yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. There's just so much that I was so unaware of about what black women especially are contending with when it comes to this. I mean, Mm -hmm. to your point about Serena Williams, it Mm -hmm. really is a much more layered phenomenon for them. Yes. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And motherhood. Yeah. Or being queer. I mean, there are just, there are so many elements of identity that you, there's now like this, this very hot thing in the workplace that's like, bring your whole self to work. Yeah. What is the option? Like, yeah. to not? Like, you, it can, you, yeah. can be, you can be a black woman who can show up to work and not be a black woman? How does that work? And yet what I'm hearing is, but show up as the right type of black woman yeah, or right, the right, right type right, of Latina yeah. or right, the, right. the right type of queer person. Mm-hmm. And so Perform it's Perform all roles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about your career and how you got to this place mm-hmm. where you're co-hosting a show, where you have a podcast, where you're writing a book? Um, all very compelling things. Because I heard you say you in, recently that you majored in women studies. Well, I did when yeah. I was convincing my parents that it was a worthwhile <laughs> degree to have. Yeah. Um, I thought that I I was one of those kids who always knew what I wanted to do, which is I wanted to run for office. Okay. Um, and I think that is in large part because I grew up in a house. My dad's an elected mm-hmm. official. My mom um, is a public school educator. And so for me, I grew up in this house that was defined by service. And so I actually couldn't imagine anything different. Mm, right. um, so that's the plan that I went through most of my my early 20s with and then I worked on a few campaigns after college and 
I was in the comms team and I realized that we didn't have as much power to control the narrative as the media had Mm. to decide what the narrative was. And so I was sort of like, oh, I want to go do what they're doing. And so um, I took like a job that I found on the internet at Mm -hmm. RNN TV in Westchester and I did a reverse commute and it was wonderful. You put in the work and you did the the hard thing. I did the hard thing and I did it in the most unglamorous way. Like (laughs) it was not um, a fancy place. It wasn't, didn't have like ABC, NBC, CNN next to it. Um, And I was a booker, which is one of the hardest jobs. And I Mm. think people don't really understand what that is. Like when you see a guest on television, Someone has researched, sourced, reached out to that person, Mm -hmm. set up car service for them, gotten them in the chair. And sometimes they're amazing and sometimes they're a dud. But like that's that's the job. And sitting in a newsroom, I learned about SOTs, sound on tape, Mm. uh, OTSs, over the shoulder. So for me, it was really a crash course in producing. And I loved it. Um, And they gave me a chance to be on camera and... That's a thing I don't think you know if you're good at until you get to do it. That's what I was going to ask. Did you aspire to be, you knew you wanted to be a part of the media, but did you know broadcast journalism specifically or you were just sort of, I want to tell stories? I wanted to tell stories, but I also know about myself that I'm a talker. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the format was going to be talking, Um, you know. 15 years ago, we didn't have podcasts. Right. Radio was quote unquote dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and so television felt like a very viable thing to con- at least consider. I mean, the, as a irony, the irony of it as an old millennial is that it seemed like a vibrant medium that <laughs> would never go out of style. And, and you, in some ways you don't, the thing about television is you, when we sit here and we talk, if I want to describe something to you, I have to describe it to you in terms such that you can see it in your mind's eye. On television, you see someone. So like, so if they have feelings or emotions, all of that is captured, mm-hmm. if you are visually able, in in the visual representation. So I did like, I did like it. And, and at the same time, I didn't want to pursue the the path that most people do, which is you do local news and mm-hmm. you um, skip across markets. And so I've had this very circuitous path that took me back into policy and advocacy work. From there, I did television spots because it was mm-hmm. novel that there was a young Latina who was able to go toe-to-toe with Bill O'Reilly, <laughs> and which is like to this day what m- most people know me for having done. Yeah. And then the, the question was how to make the jump into being the person who was leading the conversation. And I got really lucky. There was this woman named Josanne Lopez who worked at CNN and she was a talent development person and she tried to hire me at CNN. And then she went to the Huffington Post to launch HuffPost Live. And Mm -hmm. that was my big break. Mm -hmm. She hired me there as one of the 10 hosts and producers that would launch that network. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, So what got you back into writing? What I understand now is that people of our generation consume media in all forms and that if you want to reach um if we want to reach our peers then you have to be willing to play on every platform and their different you're omni channel (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, and also you know so i think one of the things that's interesting about bustle is you know bustle was they've always done news but really i think the 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 vast majority of people I speak to when I'm like, oh, I work at Bustle, they're like, oh, I love their lifestyle and their celebrity. Mm -hmm. So when they got this infusement to do news and politics, it felt like an interesting opportunity to figure out how do you take an audience that has been built on lifestyle and pop culture Mm -hmm. and 
then present them with news and information in a way that doesn't feel strange when it's in juxtaposition to a face mask. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I see that as an opportunity. Like, I yeah, really yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Like, our, our Twitter streams go back and forth so much high-low. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes a lot of sense. That well, the same people that are interested in face masks are interested in the stories that you're telling. Well, yeah, they are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it just, and just, and the... For a long time, I bumped up against trying to convince people who'd been in traditional media that that was the case. Yeah. And part of the reason I'm so happy to be a bustle is they just they get it. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, totally. Can you talk about the this, this show you're doing with Christiane Amanpour and what it means to you to be on it? Because to me, I, I'm A, so excited about it and that that she's has this and but really excited that you're on it, too. Me, me too. <laughs> my mom, my mom, too. Um <laughs> So for the last two years, I've been going into meetings and people would be like, well, what do you want to do? And I'd say, well, the thing I love most is long form interviews. Mm -hmm. And people were like, nobody does that. And so I am very aware of how lucky I am Mm -hmm. to get 12 to 20 minutes of airtime to sit down with one person Mm -hmm. and speak with them. That is just a luxury. And, And I think the difference in terms of then the caliber of conversation you have is so, for example, um, when this airs or in proximity to, to this episode of the podcast airing, I will have interviewed Jose Antonio Vargas, who's mm. the Pulitzer Prize winning mm-hmm. journalist who came out a few years ago yeah. as being undocumented. And he's just written a book, um, Notes from an Undocumented American. And most of the cable conversations I would anticipate where they interview Jose will um, focus on immigration policy and the politics of the Trump administration. That's certainly an important conversation to have. But Jose and I got to talk about his mom and... and and what it means when you're like a little kid and your mom puts you on a plane yeah, because she just loves you so much. You know, that's the conversation you don't get to have when you have four minutes with an interview subject. And you're Um, trying to hit the high notes of what this book is about and what the issues are that are relevant. And whereas a journalist, you want to seem as though you have been fair. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked about should America have sovereign borders? We did did all of that. But what we then you had eight more minutes. But then we had eight more minutes to talk about what it means when you're a person who has no home. I mean, that's like an existential challenge that is in some ways way bigger than any policy or Mm -hmm. law. So... Um, when, when you went into those meetings and they said, people don't do that, they don't do long form interviews. Do they mean that the networks, the shows don't do that or that the inner, the subjects of the interview don't submit to these longer? That's such a good question. Um, you, you certainly bring up a good point, which is that, and Barbara Walters talks about this in her book audition, which is 20, 30 years ago, there were three or four places you'd go to do mm-hmm. your big reveal interview yeah, where yeah, now yeah. someone can get on Insta or or YouTube and, and do it themselves. themselves yeah. So so there's certainly more competition mm-hmm. for those bookings. And I think that there are a lot of celebs and newsmakers who are loath to sit down mm-hmm. for 20 minutes. At the same time, I still think people see the opportunity yeah. um, to have someone else lead the conversation. But I think really what it meant is that's just not the way the airtime is structured right. anymore. Yeah. Right. And I think yeah. it's why people are listening to podcasts because yeah. you're like, I just, well, that's like, what, what I breathe. think is so interesting is that they're saying that to you yet. So, you know, I can't get enough of like an hour long podcast. And, and I listened to your um, interview this morning with, I, it was, I think the woman who is heading up diversity at Viacom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so Easy. good. And when it ended, I was like, 
that was how long that was so short. And I looked and it was like 28 minutes. And I was like, that's how long our podcast was. But I wanted to hear more. Yeah, totally. Or that's totally. how, you know, and I'm I'm now craving these longer form interviews because I do think, you know, to get back to something you were talking about earlier. Also, I think people are just more comfortable being authentic and getting into those, the, well, the, you know, these vulnerable I think moments. that podcasts and like panels and conferences mm-hmm. have kind of shaped, changed yeah. the way that we think about that, because I do think that people are used to having more access in those formats. I also think that there's something that happens when there are cameras. Like I notice, Mm -hmm. like look at my body language, like I'm Mm -hmm. slumped over, you know, but I'm being myself with you. Yeah. Where if there are lights, cameras, you're very aware of the fact that it is being recorded. Ten other people in the room. Yeah. 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 It's hard to create that intimacy. That's true. Yeah. That is very true. Yeah. No, totally. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your podcast? Yeah. I, um... So I, before I was at PBS, had been at Fusion, which was an enterprise of ABC and Univision. And because we were housed in the same building as Univision, we shared a lot of guests who would go on Despierta America, which Mm -hmm. is one of the largest uh, morning shows in the country. So we would like get Michael B. Jordan and Mm -hmm. people, but we also would get a lot of Latino guests who would come on and... What I realized was there were conversations that we would have, especially when we would have Latina guests mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. We would have like the conversation where they would pitch me whatever it was they were working on. And then the lights would go down and our mics would be removed. And one of us would be like, wow, are you? <laughs> and that was the real conversation, which is when you are a um, when you're anyone, but especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a woman of color mm-hmm. navigating a professional space in which there are not a lot of other yeah. people who are like you. There's a there's stuff going on that you want to be able to talk about with someone. And and I missed those conversations and I wanted a place to have them and to share them because if there are things that I'm going through and that these guests are going through, then I know that there are other people out there who would yeah. benefit from them. Um, and so it's been, it's been really great. And it's always funny to me, you know, we focus on the professional and yet we will always end up talking about relationships, mm-hmm. family, uh, reproductive choices mm-hmm. like that all because it all ties together. So you use professionalism as the lens, yeah. but yeah. then everything well, there's else. there's no true separation. No, exactly. yeah. um, there's no, the episode that I feel like if I could recommend just one, um, <laughs> just one is the comedian Christella uh, Alon- yeah, Alonso. Oh my God. It was so good. I knew, no- I knew nothing about her. Shame on me. Um, but I like almost cried and really wanted to go see Cars three after, <laughs> which, which is like not you know Great not what I expected. That's not what the word we were looking for. It's exactly. The she blur. voices she voices the hero in Cars three. Um, yeah, she's a delight. Cristela Alonso is a delight of a human being. I also highly recommend watching her um, Netflix comedy special yes. Lower Class. Yes, yes. Uh, and she just she's so part of what makes her interesting to me is she's a creator. So yeah. she's not someone who is just showing up and reading someone else's material, yeah. which is a talent and a skill. She is someone who is infused into everything she does and and you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were saying how they shaped the character in Cars 3 Cruise off of the conversations that they were having with her and the character got expanded because oh. yeah because of her story and her background which it's, was just really charming and it's compelling. so lovely to me yeah. that you both listen to this thank you for doing it <laughs> oh my gosh that. as someone who preps for interviews professionally <laughs> i appreciate the prep though as opposed to like you know in that other episode <laughs> it was my favorite um something else we wanted to talk about was this piece speaking of, of being prepped this this piece you wrote uh related to the <laughs> 
no big deal. No. Can you hear the pot? Can I think hear? so. I'm just going to brush brush my shoulder off too while my hand's up there. Okay. Um, yeah. No big deal. Um, it related to the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, the fact that abortion hasn't been for a lot of women of our generation quite the sort of mobilizing issue that someone sitting in this little bubble that the three of us are sitting in right now might otherwise think because for so many women of color and lower income women in parts well, of this country. a lot country, of immigrants who weren't yes. used to legal abortion being a thing. Yeah, um, they just don't have access to abortion. So it's as if there is a ban for them. Right. That That is part of it, that the lived mm-hmm. experience of having yeah. a constitutional right mm-hmm. to an abortion is not necessarily yeah. experience yeah. Of, a, of a lot of women in this country. Mm-hmm. But then also I wanted to, very often when these, when when abortion comes back in the spotlight, there's sort of inevitably this piece. It's like millennials don't care. Right. And that's not exactly right. Yeah. What it is, is there is a been a challenge for what what is sometimes called the choice community, what is sometimes called the reproductive justice community Mm -hmm. around how you talk about this, which Mm -hmm. is when you talk about it simply in the context of Roe or simply in the context of a right to privacy, um, that can feel really heady Mm -hmm. where when you talk about it as in a, an intersectional way. And that word always makes me feel like I'm in like a college section, but Mm -hmm. you know, when you talk about people as though like your ability to have access to contraceptives is tied to this issue, your ability, economic opportunity Mm -hmm. and your, your whole career. And yeah. Um, yeah. It just, it's, it's, interesting to me as a person in media watching in some ways how little coverage has been dedicated to Kavanaugh because we are in the Trump show and the Trump show is 24-7 and I think one of the unfortunate side effects of that is that we don't get a lot of time to talk about the other very real things that Mm -hmm. are happening um, in American politics and yep. policies. So even the child separation policy, there have been some great outlets that have kept it in the news, but it is mm-hmm. because they are really trying to keep right. it in the news. Because um, it it's would be a just, concerted mm-hmm. effort of them banging yes. banging that drum. Yeah. yeah. What are you most excited to be reporting on right now? So I, in the lead up to November and to the midterms, I am really interested in what a successful effort to turn out the new American electorate looks like. Mm -hmm. So that has traditionally been described as millennials, of which Mm -hmm. we are the oldest, the largest, most diverse generation in American history, which is important because, like, I I say that thing and it sounds like... it's important because it's a huge voting block. Yeah. And so so that's one piece. Um, unmarried women is another huge mm-hmm. piece. African-American voters and Latino voters. And midterms are traditionally lower turnout mm-hmm. than presidential years. And so there are a lot of efforts right now to engage and mobilize those communities and at the same time, I think you sort of have to have a, a barometer on what success is. Mm-hmm. Is success doing as well as the last midterm? Success yeah. Is, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm I'm interested in that and I'm interested in this wave of women that are running. Yeah. Yeah, totally. What do you think is working to get this new block of voters engaged? Money. You have to spend money. Yeah. And that's yeah, sort of like yeah. an unsexy answer, but mm-hmm. it's the truth, which is this comes down to infrastructure yeah. and infrastructure that is very often um not been built or committed to in a really mm-hmm. long-term way. And then I think there are also structural issues like um, like some of the voting laws mm-hmm. that make it really difficult for these communities to just yeah. show up and know that they will be able to vote. Mm-hmm. And then the added irony of the fact that if you talk about voting restrictions, yeah. it actually tampen, dampens mm-hmm. turnout. Yeah. Uh-huh. So. 
when you think about your career and your path, is there anybody that you look to who are like that, that person's done it in a way that I, you know, I'd be interested in following? Um, because I, you have taken such an interesting path. I just got it so wrong in so many ways. I, just, <laughs> what do you mean? I, I mean two things. One is I, I for a long for for a while the goal was to have an Oprah esque thing, and mm-hmm. then I listened to the podcast Becoming Oprah, where she tells yeah, everyone yeah. there will never be another Oprah, um, which I think I'd sort of already gotten to in my own mind. Um, <laughs> I, am, I like, though, that Oprah was the only one who could tell you that you weren't going to be yeah. Oprah. That's appropriate. <laughs> Correct. I was yeah. like, well, now I'm hearing it. Like, yeah. other people have done it, yeah. but now I'm hearing it. Um, no, that's the right way it should happen. I am envious of other members of our generation who focused on building actual platforms and then becoming talent on those platforms. Hmm. Rather, in some ways, I feel I have dreamed too small and not been ambitious enough and did not harness my capacity as a creator and a builder to build something of my own. Like if I got a chance to do this again, yeah. I think that would that would be a turn that I just would have made sooner and something yeah, that yeah. is on my mind a lot now, yeah. which is it no longer feels sufficient to be offered an opportunity to step into a role that someone else has created. You want to create the role and shape the the platform for the conversation itself. Yes. Yeah. And I also feel that part of that comes from having been at HuffPost Live six years ago, which really ended up being a platform that's just so wildly ahead of its time yeah. that people couldn't process it at the time. But now as I watch broadcast networks try to build their own online streaming networks i realized just how they're how like playing catch knew. up they're, yeah. play, they're playing catch up and there there were a lot of lessons to be learned from what we got right and what we got wrong mm-hmm. that i hope don't just disappear who are examples of people that are of our generation who you think have have done that have made the platform I mean, I look at Ezra Klein, yeah, yeah, um, and his building of Vox. Yeah, I look at the guys who build Mike. I mean, I, I wish I had more women and women yeah, yeah, of color yeah. to highlight in mm-hmm. this, but the the that's we know how funding yeah, works. I was going to say that's not your fault. Right. I mean, I guess yeah. I guess um, the women at the skim, yeah, mm-hmm. like yeah, that totally. was really yeah. an example mm-hmm. of um, of seeing an opportunity mm-hmm. and going after it. Um, but yeah, those types of things. Mm-hmm. And I and I think part of it is I am built to want to be like, I am building the thing and it is the thing and I have complete clarity around what the thing is, as opposed to understanding it doesn't need to be what it starts out being. Right. Yeah. Um, but the I'm not a perfectionist, but the perfectionist strain in yeah. me yeah. 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 wants it to be that. And yeah. so you want it to come out like fully realized. Right. right. And it's yeah. like, no, I mean, who did you guys think you're going to have a podcast when no, you started? Totally of not. A kind? No. Like it, yeah. It, we, when but, we started uh, of a kind, we released one thing a week. We, but I will say that. <laughs> I have a lot of questions about how that was a sustainable business model. <laughs> I will, yeah. Barely. Um, yeah, barely. Um, I will say, though, that. We certainly, I don't know if suffer is the right word, but suffer from that same complex. And even when we were running the businesses, one thing a week, releasing one thing a week, there were um, so many rules that we sort of like instituted for ourselves for what this thing was and what yeah. it had to be and what we had to stick with. And, and some of that I think is very important and useful yeah. to be able to, you know, form structure for yourself where it doesn't otherwise exist. And sometimes you're like, why did I build this wall here? Right. And I think that's <laughs> the thing is that we've had many times had to say to ourselves, to remind ourselves, this is our business. We created this thing. If something's not working for us anymore, we can change it. And I think it, 
I, you know, I consider what we've done a success in so many ways, but I can look and see where that feeling that like we have to come out with the thing being perfect has prevented us from doing something like there are certain things we should have done three years before we did them because it was like, oh, this but is what we only sell limited edition. Things. Exactly. Exactly. And I and and we were never the types of people who were like, oh, it's just minimum viable product. It's not perfect, but just push it out into the world because get feedback. Yeah, that wasn't our thing. <laughs> and so I, I well, think, I think it plays back it, actually yeah. right back into what you were saying before about like ability and, mm-hmm. you know, response yeah, of absolutely. like, if you're putting out a minimum viable product, then you're getting feedback. People are going to say shitty things about it and uh, yeah. end up to you. And, and we need to be taken we, seriously. I don't yeah, know what yeah. minimal viable product is. <laughs> so well, it's sort you guys of like, went into like business <laughs> women oh, yeah. mode. Well, it's I, a very tech startup term that, that speaks to what you were saying, which is that in the startup culture, there's this idea Especially that in like 2012, yeah, yeah, that perfect is the enemy of good and that you shouldn't, you know, wait too long to get your pro your, uh, let's say, you know, your widget out into the world because somebody else will <laughs> get their widget out first. And their so widget you, might be shittier than yours, but yeah. they'll have the market share by the time you get there. So get your shitty widget out and then iterate, iterate, iterate. It's this move fast and break things, you know, just like get it out the door and and, you know, if you're a white male, you're likely to get funding for that, like, half-baked widget as long as you got it out the door. But I do think there is pressure on on groups of people who are not necessarily straight white men to seem a little more perfect and to prove themselves in a way. And so I do think that that is how you end up with the mindset that all three of us seem to have of it has to be perfect in order to get it out the door. And I want you to think about that as you become a mom, which is yeah. that has actually been a really helpful lesson for me. So my, my daughter's almost two and you don't know what you're doing yeah. and you do figure it out yeah. because you can. And the mom that you are the day you bring your child home is not the mom you need to be three months in. And like you can continue to change your mind. And that has been learning the lesson from that where it's like, she's fine. She's loved. She's cared for. Yeah. Like yeah. as yeah, long yeah, as yeah, I'm yeah. meeting those basic needs then I can make stylistic and programmatic changes. Hmm. It's been a lesson that I've then been able to apply to my work life. That's no, good. that's really interesting. Yeah. What's the thing you were telling me about the like drop the ball thing? Oh, Tiffany Dufu wrote this book, um, Drop the Ball. And because I have so much anxiety around <laughs> motherhood that I like can't read certain things for fear of like opening up that door in my yeah. mind. I haven't read it yet, but I have it. But the basic concept is that and I'm very much guilty of this is that women do so much because every they 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 have a sense that everyone else expects them to and and they and expect, expect that of themselves yeah. right and they need to we need to be willing to just drop the ball sometimes because either someone else will pick it up who who realizes that it's been dropped or it's just going to be fine and it's yeah, fine if yeah, it all yeah. drops and it's like not booking the not booking the plane tickets that exactly. you typically book in your relationship for yeah. Thanksgiving because guess what someone else will figure out how to do that yeah. because they're capable of doing that or whatever right <laughs> yeah. or or I said I I was in New York taping an episode of Almond Poor and it was my daughter's first day of school and my husband God bless him like did her hair as best he could <laughs> yeah. totally and a teacher fixed it and she yeah. looked it looked better than a if I would have been there. Totally. And I felt like a mm-hmm. little, I mean, I think there's also just so much pressure because you see the other parents who have gotten their apps right. together to order a chalkboard off of Pinterest and write in all their favorite things. And like, that is just not going to be, I, I can't do that yeah. and do all the things I do professionally. 100%. And God bless the people who can. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to beat myself 
up over that. And then I just have to remember, I'm not going to beat myself up. Thank you so much. This was Thank wonderful. You, you are just Thank so you. charming. You are. Um, You're so good at this. Uh, okay, everybody, you can find you can find this lovely, charming human being on PBS on Sunday evenings. Sunday evenings? No, you can find Monday through Friday. Oh, it's Monday through Friday. Friday. You can also find us on CNNI. And um, I'm not on every night. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But if you follow me on social, I promise to aggressively self-promote okay. on the nights that I'm on. 100%. Good. And listen to the Latina um, to Latina podcast. Yes, so please. good. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, that's the show. This has been a production of Dear Media. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are found, like Stitcher, iTunes, and now Spotify. Follow us at Of A Kind on Instagram and Twitter and like our Facebook page. If you have ideas or requests for the show, email them to a few things at ofakind.com. To advertise on our podcast, that's advertising at ofakind.com. Our intro music, Butterfield East, is written and performed by the Soulful Saints. <laughs>